My name is Patrick J. McGinnis, and I coined the term FOMO. That's short for fear of missing out, and it's why some people end up following the crowd. But we're not like them. We're part of a new species that isn't afraid to do things differently. I call us FOMO sapiens. And this is the show where you'll meet people like us, phenomenal FOMO sapiens, to learn how they find the courage and the ideas to live exceptional lives. FOMO. FOMO. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to FOMO Sapiens, the show for people who don't just follow the crowd, but instead take their own path to success in business and in life. I'm your host, Patrick J. McGinnis, venture capitalist by day, author and podcaster by night, and of course, FOMO Sapiens 24-7. Now, as you know, our theme this season, crush it without getting crushed. It's tough. It's tough out there, especially when we have toxic achievement culture, right? Got to win all the time. And by the way, I mean... Let's put it this way. I'm terrible at this stuff. I, as a kid, total lunatic, totally obsessed with winning at everything. I remember, this is a sad little story I'll tell you. When I was graduating from high school, I overheard one of the teachers talking about me, and he said that I was a grade grubber, and he was right, because I was. I would negotiate my grades. Now, I was, in my head, I was like, I need good grades to get into the college I want. So, you know, all's well that ends well. But the problem is, you know, it's not a way to live. You can still do really well without being a great grubber. So this is a topic that is near and dear to my heart. And there's a new book out called Never Enough all about this. And I had heard about this. I had heard about this book from Agapi Stasinopoulos, who was on the show a little while ago. And she told me about this book and about the author. And I was thinking, how interesting. And then I walked into somebody's beach house in the Hamptons and the book was sitting on the table, the advanced copy. And I thought to myself, this is a sign. I need to talk to this woman. I need to learn about this book. I need to share this with all the FOMO sapiens because this is such a topic for the FOMO sapiens, right? We do it to ourselves. We do it to our employees. We do it to our partners. We do it to our children. We do it. And so it's important to understand what's happening. Knowledge is power. And maybe you can address some of this stuff. Now, my guest is Jenny Wallace. She's an award-winning journalist and social commentator covering parenting and lifestyle trends, and she's a frequent contributor to the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and on TV, where she talks about her articles and other hot topics in the news. After graduating from Harvard College, she began her career in TV at 60 Minutes, where she worked as a journalist for many years. She lives in New York with her husband and three children, and you can find more about her on her website, which is jenniferbwallace.com. Now, this is a great episode. We're going to get deep into this. Like, How does one identify this trend? What is the cause? How do we deal with it? But to start out, she actually gave a really amazing starting answer to my favorite question, which of course you guys know, I will say in a minute, about sort of how to regain productivity when you're a people pleaser, which is something that just, I just thought it was a very strong way to start the interview and it was a sign of things to come because she is sharp. So get ready for that. Now, my small ask this week, it's to show a little love to one of our sponsors. So NetSuite is a sponsor of FOMO Sapiens. They have been a longtime sponsor and they actually just, they're just like, it's a great product, right? And what they are giving away this month is really cool. It's a CFO's ultimate KPI checklist. Not just for the CFO though, it's for anybody who needs KPIs. And one of my buddies actually, he's involved in a nonprofit, one of my good friends from college. And he called me recently and I was asking him about the KPIs of this nonprofit. And he was like, what's a KPI? And then this came out in the in the NetSuite sort of promo for the month. And so I sent it to him and I said, there's your KPI checklist, buddy. 
And he, he downloaded it and he said it was wonderful. So check it out. You go to netsuite.com slash FOMO. That is netsuite.com slash FOMO. Download the CFO's ultimate KPI checklist. Check it out. Seriously, it's very cool. And uh, let me know what you think. But I think it's pretty, pretty cool. You need the KPIs. I love a KPI, as you'll hear in the ad later on. Now, on to the interview. As you know, I like to start every interview with the same question. So I started our conversation with this one. What's a formative decision you've had to make to get to where you are today? Um, the decision I had to make was to get clear about my values and set up personal policies around them because I was a person that had a hard time saying no to people. But I found that if I created a personal policy, meaning that it, my no wasn't personal to you, this is just something I don't do, um, that helped me capture the time that I needed to be able to write, write this book and also helped me become the person I wanted to be, not the bad person who was always saying no to people, but people who were pretty clear about their boundaries. And I found that it actually drew people to me because they knew they could ask me things. Um, and that if I said, yes, I really wanted to do it. Wow. So you come into the interview and you give me a, a very, uh, this is what we, I mean, this is the stuff that I love to talk about because I struggle. So I, I do want to unpack that a little. Could you yeah. give an example of like a before and an after and the shift? Because what I, I'm interested in how you came up with your policies and codified them, but also I'm interested in like the, the kind of the, the net positivity or the fact that you kind of had more power after power, maybe the wrong word, but you get my point. Yeah. Yes. Talk about that, please. So I was actually thinking about, I have three children in schools that really welcome parent involvement. And in the early days when I was freelancing and I had some time, I could be very involved, but then I found myself being pulled and my days being, you know, doing this thing. And then could somebody head up this project for the school? And so I created a personal policy that I'd gotten from the founder of Stella and Dot, which was... I will volunteer time when I get eyeball to eyeball with my kid. So if this is a field trip or a bake sale where my child will be involved in it or a library, you know, reading or things like that, I always said yes to it. But the more administrative stuff behind the scenes, that was a, a personal policy that I was no longer going to be doing that. My husband has a policy, for example, about overnight flights, um, red eyes from California. He just doesn't do them. That's his policy. He just doesn't do it. So what's great about personal policies is we, I find myself, and I think this is true of everybody, according to the research, that we get drained having to make so decision fatigue. And so having these policies in place, I no longer have to make a decision. Oh no, this is not going to work or, or this will work. This is fits in my policy. I actually wrote an article for the Wall Street Journal a few years ago about the power of personal policies. And I found that the research, there, were, there was a researcher, Vanessa Patrick in Texas, who found that if people were dieting and they were at a party and they said, oh, no thanks to the cake, people would push them, oh, just have one small slice, just you can do this. And instead if they said, oh, I don't eat cake, Mm -hmm. People stopped. So it it's just about sort of having conviction about your no and doing it in a kind way where you let the person feel like they still matter to you and that it's not personal. It's just something you're not doing. 
Yeah, people it's uh, people say now like, oh, I'm, I don't eat sugar, and so they could, and and you don't question it because you're like, oh, well, like that's right. It's like I, I I don't eat fish or whatever. That's very smart. Now, do you write these down? Do you have fifty of them? Do you have three? Like, how do you avoid it becoming itself like a a prison of just having a bunch of rules to follow? Because that's not fun either. No, it's really the the policies that I have are around my work time. So really having that eight to four block where I very seldomly will I do lunches or meet for coffee. It's really, um, I really need that time to research and write and I need large chunks of time. So I'm protective of that time. And actually this is a quirk of mine, but I have reminders in my workspace about maintaining my boundary. So I have, I don't have it on this desk because I'm not in my normal home, but I have a ceramic tiger that sits on my desk that acts as a boundary in my, in my eyes, that's my boundary signal. And when friends of mine are on deadlines or when a friend was writing a book on a really short deadline, I kept texting her because she's also somebody whose boundaries bleed out. Um, I kept texting her the tiger to remember you need somebody to protect your boundaries. Oh, wow. This is so amazing. Okay. Lots of good stuff there, everybody. So go read the article in the journal. The article is about the power of personal policies. And then I too have on my desk a thing that says pensi in Portuguese, which means think. And I, I actually, it belongs to a guy called Mark Young. Sorry, Mark. He was my colleague in Brazil. So if you want it, you can come get it in New York. But it is a mantra, like a, it's like a physical mantra that I have in my space. So I, I love all this stuff and I think it keeps us on track. Now we're going to get into the topic today, which is so timely. And as, as, as I, as I talked about in the intro, I met Jenny through Agape, our good friend. And then I, her book started following me around and I realized that this is just, it's the zeitgeist right now. She's capturing something that a lot of people are feeling. This is what books, great books are about. It's about it's the thing that's out in the ether that people haven't necessarily put a finger on. And then Jenny comes along and she does it for us. So you spent four years writing Never Enough. Like what, why, like what brought you to this? So a few things came up for me in 2019. The first thing was my oldest. I'm a mother of three teenagers. My oldest was entering high school. And I thought, okay, I have four more years left to give him all the lessons, the values, everything I want him to leave our home with. Um, and then I thought, how should I be spending my parental energies? And I had a feeling that my role as a parent was more than just to push my kids to excellence, despite the fact that my environment around me was saying, your most important thing is to get your kid into a good college. So anyway, so that was happening. Then at the same time, the Varsity Blue scandal hit, which if you remember, it was parents on the West Coast and the East Coast caught up in an illegal conspiracy to bribe their a college acceptance for their kids. And so parents were now going to jail to get their kids into schools like USC. And I said to myself, how did we get to a place where parents were now willing to go to jail to get their kids into a highly selective school? And I was not buying the idea that parents just wanted a logo or a bumper sticker, which is the common narrative. Oh, parents are so caught up in status. I didn't believe that. I thought there was something deeper at play. And so I wanted to really report on that. And then the final thing that led to the book was in 2019, I wrote an article for the Washington Post about how students in high achieving schools, 
those that's what researchers call them. Those are competitive public and private schools all around the country um, where kids go off to four year colleges and, you know, have extracurricular offerings and AP classes. And it's sort of a competitive type of environment. Those kids were now officially an at risk group after kids in poverty, kids with incarcerated parents, recent immigrants, and children living in foster care. It's these students at these competitive schools. And my kids go to one of these competitive schools. And so I wanted to know in my home what I could do to buffer against this excessive pressure. And when I say, when researchers say they're at risk, what I mean by that is they are two to six times more likely to suffer from clinical levels of anxiety, depression, and substance abuse disorder than the average American teen. So we're not talking about occasional blues or a little being a little anxious. These are clinical levels. So that sent me on the path. FOMO. Tudo bem, meus queridos FOMO sapiens? Now that right there was Portuguese. And as you know, I love speaking foreign languages. But I'm not alone. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off that list with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Now, FOMO sapiens, you know I speak four languages, and it takes work to stay on top of them, especially with French. C'est difficile. But with Babbel, I'm able to practice practical conversations that I can actually use in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash FOMO. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash FOMO. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash FOMO. Rules and restrictions may apply. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, or delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you improve efficiency by bringing all major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. And with rising prices everywhere you look, you got to do the math and save money. Good news, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head over to netsuite.com slash FOMO. That's netsuite.com slash FOMO. netsuite.com slash FOMO. FOMO. Wow. It, 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 it's astounding to hear this because we have this perception of course in our society around all the like you mentioned varsity blues like i i was just like these parents are selfish and they're using their privilege to engineer a system and i mean sure there's part of that in there but i never thought about the root cause which is that there is all this anxiety even if you have quote unquote everything you're still you get up in the morning and you brush your teeth and you still have your kids to deal with even if you're Lori Laughlin with your two influencer daughters which yeah, that was that was a whole other element of that story. But there is like a there's a shift. You interviewed economists and sociologists, historians, and it's always good when a, when a reporter writes a book because <laughs> there's there's evidence uh, behind it. It's not just platitudes, and things are different. It's not like it was in the '80s. 
right? It's not, you know, it's like anybody who wasn't around, go watch Stranger Things. Like, other than the fact that they were getting attacked by Martians or whatever, it was kind of nice. And so what has changed? You know, what's the secular shift that's, that's making this a big problem? Yeah, exactly. So when I was growing up in the 70s and early 80s, you know, life was generally more affordable. Housing was more affordable. Healthcare was more affordable. Higher education was more affordable. Food was more affordable. And so parents could afford to be more relaxed in their parenting and let their kids make mistakes and, and recover because they generally believed that that the kid would be able to replicate their childhood, if not do even better. You know, in our country, we have this sort of tenant, this idea that every generation can do better than the next. But we are now seeing a generation that is not doing as well as their parents. And so it's what I found was that there are these macroeconomic forces that parents are raising their kids in. And the job of a parent is to raise a child to thrive and survive when the parent is no longer around, right? So if parents are sensing this steep inequality, crush of the middle class, hyper competition that's been shepherded in with globalization, they are they are absorbing these macroeconomic forces and becoming, in the words of researchers, social conduits, you know, helping to prepare kids for this unknown future. We don't know what the majority of jobs will be like for our kids. So what are we preparing our kids for? And that's causing an anxiety. And and what parents, particularly in the top 25% of household incomes who have disposable income, these parents seem to have bet big that getting your kid into a highly selective college will act as a kind of life vest in a sea of uncertainty. They'll keep the kid afloat no matter what comes their way. And unfortunately, that life vest that parents are trying to protect their kids with has become a lead vest that's drowning too many of the kids that it's trying to protect. Now, at the same time, I'm sure many folks who are listening were paying attention when the Surgeon General of the U.S., Vivek Murthy, came out with a piece, I believe in the New York Times, about the epidemic of loneliness in our society and this is obviously not just children, it's it's everybody, but you know, children are acutely exposed to these kinds of things. How does that, this sort of, I mean, the pandemic and social media and all of that stuff add to the pressures that you've described in terms of the macroeconomy? Absolutely. So when we think about anxiety and when we think about loneliness and depression, at the root, at one of the roots is this unmet need to matter, to be valued for who we are at our core, away from our achievements, away from how we look, away from how many likes we get. We have sort of lost the plot in our hyper-capitalistic society. And we all now are sort of weighed with this idea that our worth is only, you know, based on our productivity, how much we make, how big our house is, the messages on social media that tell us you need to have this or that to be worthy. And so what I found in my research is that the kids, I was looking for who were the kids who were thriving despite the pressure? What did their parents focus on at home? What was school like for them? What were their relationships like? And what I found was that these kids um, who felt like they were valued for who they were at their core, by their family, by their schools, by their communities, and who were depended on to add meaningful value back, 
to their families, to their schools, to their communities, those kids had what researchers call a high level of mattering. They felt deeply valued and that acted like a protective shield against anxiety, against depression. So they still, you know, would encounter setbacks and failures, but they were not an indictment of their worth. So the kids who seem to be doing the worst are kids who feel like their worth is contingent on their performance. The other group of kids who also weren't thriving were kids who were so focused on their own resumes that they were never dependent on or asked to give back in any meaningful way. And what those kids lacked was social proof that they mattered. So the answer to your question about loneliness is this idea that so many of us have this unmet need to matter. And it, you know, the researchers who study mattering, it's a concept that's been around since the 1980s, find that after the drive for food and shelter, it is the instinct to matter that drives human behavior for better or for worse. When we feel like we matter, we show up to the world in positive ways. We want to be a caring member of the society. We want to help others. When we feel like we don't matter, we either turn inward and could, you know, turn to substances to escape, or we can act out. School shooters, domestic terrorists being the most, you know, horrific examples of this lack of mattering. But I do believe that it is this mattering that is now going unmet and it's driving a lot of of bad behavior. FOMO. I don't know if you're co- familiar with the concept of the wounded healer by Carl Jung. It's one of my, it's a fave. It's, it's a, it's a FOMO sapiens fave. And the idea here is that, uh, Jung says that people who become psychotherapists, a lot of times the reason they do it is because they have been beneficiaries of that. So they're like, wow, this is awesome. I love this. And therefore they want to like impart that onto other people. So they're like one step ahead of their patient on their journey to recovery, right? And I like to think of myself as like the wounded healer of FOMO because you know, it's like a daily struggle. I need a a FOMO tiger on my desk. And, uh, And so it's something that when I was writing my book about if you're missing out, I was like, it made me, you know, you're doing all the research, right? Like you kind of know this stuff, but then you do the deep research and you talk to all the people and you have a new, you have a new lens onto your own life. Now you wrote this book and you're, you're parenting actively three kids in, you know, an environment that is very much the environment that you're uncovering and talking about in the book. And I imagine you're like, whoa, I missed this one. I did this wrong. I got to change this. There are all these like discoveries. You're the wounded healer of never enough. So talk about you know, what did you realize in your own life and how did you apply those lessons into the way that you were living and raising your children? Yes, what a great question. So I talk about how this is very much me search. My research is very much me search. This was something that I struggled with as a parent. Um, And so there have been a lot of changes since I uh, started this research. I'd say the two big changes. The first big changes change was that I... Um, I never understood. So the, the biggest finding for me in the book is that a child's resilience rests fundamentally on their caregiver's resilience. And a caregiver's resilience rests fundamentally on the depth and support of their relationships. So I used to think of resilience as as long as I, you know, took my bubble bath, drank my tea, went for walks, had the occasional coffee with a friend, 
that slept eight hours that I could be resilient. And I think in many ways I was resilient. And then COVID hit and I was trying to write this book, helping three teenagers do Zoom school. And I started digging into the research on what resilience really is. And resilience is really, it fundamentally rests on our relationships. And it's not that the parents or me didn't have friends. We had friends. What we didn't do, what I didn't do, and what I found so many of the parents that I interviewed didn't do, is that we didn't intentionally invest in these friendships each and every week so that they could be sources of support when we needed it. So it's, I'm not saying put an oxygen mask on us before we help our kids. I'm saying when to have one or two or three friends around us who can see when we are gasping for air and put the mask on for us. That's a very different kind of relationship than somebody you go and have coffee with. I'm saying that in order for us to be resilient and not to be lonely, we need to have intentional time with friends where we are vulnerable when we invite them into our messy lives. And actually, we have a friend in common um, that we just mentioned who lives in my building. And I talk about um, my group of wonderful neighbors. We've we've sort of revillaged in New York City in this building. We have a bunch of families that are the same age. And not only do I rely on them to help me through the hard times, I sort of bring them in with me and ask for advice. So um, it's really the big thing for me, the big takeaway was I need to really focus on my own resilience first so that I could be that source of support for my kids. So during COVID, what I did was I set up an hour Zoom with two of my closest friends of 30 years. And no matter what, we had that one hour Zoom where we were seen and heard and talked about we talked about our feelings. We were vulnerable. And that carried me through COVID. It's such a good point. I was talking about this the other day. We live, many of us live very transient lifestyles nowadays. Like go back a hundred years, talk to your ancestors. Like they lived in one place pretty much their whole lives. So they had deeply networked community around them. So when things weren't going right, people could spot it. Nowadays, you could kind of hide out and constantly be changing who you're seeing and there's no continuity. You're never kept accountable. People don't know what's going on with you. We're all good marketers now. We know how to put the filters on and do the Instagram so that it looks great. And you always, you know, you hear these stories of people who are in deep pain um, and oftentimes take drastic measure and you're like, but they look so happy on the gram, right? But underneath was the pain, but they were moving around so much, nobody could kind of perceive that. So it's something really powerful to think about. It's like, can you sit down and make the list of the four people that you want to be? You know, I, I have a, my best friend and I, we talk every day on the phone and he's, he's super in touch with what's going on. We've been friends for since college. And he, and it is true that like, if something is off, like that's where I go. Thank you, Jason. Uh, and it is important. Now I, I want to talk about the concept of mattering because it sounds really good. It makes sense. But then I think about you know, you, it's like, I always think about that person who's got a 13 year old who's, you know, going through all the things locked in their room, mom or dad comes in or caretaker comes in and it's like, you know, I love you. You're great. You know, don't worry about the cyber bullies, but that kid, it's like, you can't get into that kid's head and they're unreachable. How do you, how do you make sure that you are transmitting that support and that it's actually arriving and being received by, by a young person? Yes. So two things for that 13 year old, you know, feeling cyber bullied. One is, you know, 
our children are meant to be individuating, pulling away from the family. It does not mean that parents should be pulling away too. So we parents have to get in there even when the doors are closed. We need to knock on the door. Um, you know, my husband, like your FOMO, my husband has um, branded something called NOFAs and OFAs. NOFAs are non-optional family activities and OFAs are optional family activities. So in our home, when the doors are closed too much, he issues a NOFA. And it could, you know, the kids could decide what how they want to spend that time, but we sort of demand family time, even when they sometimes don't feel like they want to do it. I would say that often, and I, this was certainly my strategy before researching the book, is that I would always try to solve for my kids' happiness. What I have realized is that a more fruitful way to approach it is to solve for their mattering. So if you have a child who you are making them feel valued, but they are not getting social proof out in the world that they are valued. Think about how you can integrate them into an elderly neighbor who needs help, you know, mowing her lawn or getting her groceries or, a, you know, a food pantry that needs help stocking the shelves. Think about what you could do as a family to show that child social proof that they matter, helping the grandparents with electronics, Helping lonely grandparents, just setting up a one-hour Zoom and a Quizlet, you know, to have like a family trivia night. Find ways. So I'm thinking of that 13-year-old. They could become the family tech expert. They could become the grandparent tech, tech expert where they have a role. They are valued for something that is important to them, which is, you know, maybe gaming or whatever it is. So it's not solving for their happiness. It's solving for their mattering. Where can you show them that they have value in the community? I love that because I think, you know, what's so pernicious for so many of us is that reference anxiety. It's that I'm not the best sport, you know, soccer player. I can't sing. I'm not pretty, whatever. And which may or may not be true, but these things get in our heads. But if you can find something even if it's being the tech expert in your house, which, you know, is no great achievement, but still it's something, but it's your thing. And everybody recognizes it. I was thinking, I'm sure you, you've thought of this too. I think about like little Prince Harry helping his grandmother, the queen with a television back in, in, you know, when he was at Eton or whatever. It's like, it was his thing that in the family, everybody would defer to him. And so he mattered. It's a beautiful concept that anybody can integrate with their kids and just find that one thing and then do it with them. Now, I do want to end with, um, you, you offer a series of questions on how parents can reflect on the pressure at home. And I think it's important for folks to have like just easy ways of just like a stop, drop and roll kind of thing. And like, let's just, let's just assess what's going on here. Cause once you, if you don't do that, then you're not, you know, you haven't started the process. So what can people, you know, what can they be on the lookout for? What are those like flashing warning signs that mm -hmm. they should be questioning? So Tina Payne Bryson, who's a psychoanalyst, gave me these four questions that I found helpful in my own home to see what kind of messages you're sending your kids around achievement and how much you prioritize it. Uh, so the first one is look at your child's calendar outside of school. The second one is look at how you spend your money as it relates to your child. The third one is take note of what you ask your child about. When they walk in the door, what's the first thing you're asking them? Is it about the Spanish quiz or is it what did they have for lunch? Um, and then the last one is, what do you argue with your child about? 
Those four questions will tell you a lot about the messages you are sending about how important achievement is in your home. And I'm not saying don't make achievement important. What I'm saying is be ambitious for more with your children. Teach them, give them the skills to strive in healthy ways and teach them importantly that when things are going wrong, to never worry alone. That's a Ned Hallowell phrase. And to me, I've adopted it in my home and my children. I said, this is our family mantra, never worry alone. Never worry alone. I have not heard that before, but that is, it's very powerful, especially in a place where people feel so lonely, being able to open up to people and not carrying the entire weight on your shoulders. So the theme of this season is, is how to crush it without getting crushed. And this is for the kids out there. Kids, you can crush it without getting crushed, but for everybody, because if you're an ambitious person out in the world and you wanna be a great parent and you wanna be a great professional and all these sorts of things, and you aren't succeeding in parenting and you, you don't know what to do and you're taking it all on yourself, you're not going to be very happy. You're going to get crushed. So this is all extraordinarily valuable advice. Now, if you want to find out more about the book, Never Enough, and about Jennifer, you can go to her website. It is jenniferbwallace.com. You can also find her on Instagram. Very nice Instagram. I was just there. It's at jenniferbwallace. The book is out now. It's called, uh, again, Never Enough. And Jennifer Wallace, thanks a lot for being here. Thank you so much. FOMO. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me on Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis, on Twitter at PJ McGinnis, and on the web at FOMOSapiens.com or PatrickMcGinnis.com, where you can get all kinds of free resources to live a more decisive and entrepreneurial life. FOMO Sapiens is recorded in New York City. Theme music is by Mike McGinnis, and editing and post-production is by Josh Elstro. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me at FOMOSapiens.com and at PatrickMcGinnis.com. To advertise on FOMO Sapiens, reach out to contact at FOMO Sapiens.com. FOMO.